Today's podcast is brought to you by Bear Premium Cabinet Door and Trim Interior Exterior Enamel, a new product that Bear Pro is promoting to the APC audience. Bear Premium Cabinet Door and Trim Enamel offers excellent flow and leveling and dries to a hard, durable finish. The paint provides all weather protection, which is great for exterior projects. Its outstanding block resistance allows for quick return to service, making it ideal for use on cabinets, doors, trim, windows, shutters, and woodwork. Available in satin and semi-gloss finishes. For more information, visit bearpro.com slash cabinet door and trim. Bear Premium Cabinet Door and Trim Enamel is exclusively available at the Home Depot. And you can contact a Bear Pro representative by visiting bear.com slash rep. Welcome to Paint Radio with your host, Emily Howard and Andrew Dwyer. The Paint Podcast on APC's Paint Radio. Congratulations on making it here. How smart of you to join us. I'm Andrew Dwyer. Emily Howard is here. Emily, I'm sure you recall in your elementary school days, maybe your junior high, middle school days, when you're playing kickball in PE class and you take the field and then your whole team yells, sub, sub, right? Because they want to sub <laughs> like Johnny for you, right? Does that ring a bell? I do recall that, yes. <laughs> well, that is what we're talking about today. We're talking about subs. And by that, I mean subcontractors. If we're talking subcontractors, of course, we're going back to our expert, Carolyn Cromeans, owner and managing partner of the Cromeans Law Firm in Houston, which I believe is in Texas. By the way, she was, uh, I said, welcome back because she was on, boy, more than a year ago, I think last February or March, talking about contract law. So if you're a fan or if you're not a fan of contracts and you want to improve your education when it comes to that, go back, find that podcast, Q1 of last year. Excellent stuff. Carolyn Cromeans, thank you for coming back to Paint Radio. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing awesome. And at the time, way back when, your first book was about to come out. Now that book is out. That book is called Quit Getting Screwed, Understanding and Negotiating the Subcontract. I love that title because it gets right to the point. How is the book doing? Very well. I mean, I think it's gotten the response that I wanted, that people started paying attention to what's in subcontracts and realizing that if you don't, you can very easily get screwed. And there's a bunch of bad stuff in there. Now, your website is the Crow Means Law Firm. Crow Means is C-R-O. M-E-E-N-S. So the crow means law firm.com. Can they get the book there or Amazon? Yeah, if you go to my website, it's going to pop up where you can buy it on Amazon, which is the best place to get it. So awesome. Awesome. So we're talking about subcontractors. Let's start off by doing some definitions, drawing a distinction. How would you define or distinguish subcontractors from independent contractors? And we all think we know the answer. But I bet we're wrong on several elements. Okay, so usually we're ta- we're talking about you either have a subcontractor or an employee, and that's where a subcontractor is tried to be considered an independent contractor. And the first thing we have to realize is that it doesn't matter what you want to call them, because if we get the classification wrong, 
there's huge penalties that can go along with that. So people like to say, well, they're a 1099 employee. What they're trying to say is that they're an independent contractor and I'm not responsible to do the things that I would have to do if I was an employer. And sometimes you're right and sometimes you're wrong. But what the IRS and what the federal courts would look at to determine if someone is an independent contractor slash subcontractor or employee are a list of determining factors. So it's not like straight down the line. So the first one is the degree of control that you have over that person. So what that means is, do they only work for you? Do they come to your office every day and get their job assignments? Or do they have their own independent company and then you issue them a work order and they fit it into their schedule? So the less control you have, the more likely they are to be considered a subcontractor as opposed to an employee. The permanency of the relationship is factor number two, like how long have you been in this relationship as far as working for you directly? The other jobs that you may have in between there is another factor. And so like if you're working for other people at the same time, that's more likely that you'll be a subcontractor slash independent contractor. And it will be more likely considered that you are a subcontractor if number three is met meaning the higher skill level. So if you are a very experienced painter, way past the apprenticeship thing, you're more experienced, that would lend itself to you being considered as a subcontractor as opposed to an employee. Let's see, what else? Who pays for the overhead and expenses? Like who pays for the truck? Who pays for the paint? Who pays for the equipment? And if the person that's working for you pays for those things, it's more likely they'd be considered a subcontractor as opposed to an employee. In that same vein, another consideration is if there's a loss on the job, would that independent contractor feel that loss? Like if they didn't budget it right, would it be their loss? And all of those things are taken into consideration when we're trying to determine if somebody is actually an employee or a subcontractor. And so that's the important thing to look at right off the bat, because if we get the classification wrong, there could be lots of penalties that go with that. And what about if it's, I mean, like the difference between like an individual versus a company who has its own employees, who is maybe doing work for another painting contractor or something of that nature? That's definitely going to lend itself to a true subcontractor. You know, that's really great. The level of control is you're actually Mm -hmm. controlled by this other company. And so that would very much look like to me like a subcontractor relationship. And we wouldn't Mm -hmm. have to be worrying about being classified as an employee. And then the other thing to back that up, is a subcontract agreement, right? That is great yeah. evidence that this is not an employee. This is a subcontractor within truly in the meaning of subcontractor. Okay, Carolyn, just to clarify one thing, I think many of us use the term subcontractor and independent contractor interchangeably, kind of like how I interchange the word dinner and cookies. And maybe that <laughs> is appropriate and maybe it's not. Are subcontractors and independent contractors the same thing? So subcontractor is a term that we use in the construction industry generally, meaning somebody who's hired by a general, somebody who's hired by somebody else. That person can also be an independent contractor. Most subcontracts are independent contractors as well. They have their own business. They do their own thing. That's an independent contractor, which is also a subcontractor in this exchange. Where we're trying to draw the line is, are you an employee or are you an independent contractor slash subcontractor? Mm-hmm. Because that's where the classification makes a difference. Because if you're an employee, I got to withhold taxes. I got to pay you overtime, all of that. And that those rules don't apply if you're a subcontractor slash independent contractor. So those two things 
are the same on this side of the equation. This is what we're trying to talk about. Are you a truly an employee or are you a subcontractor slash independent contractor? Gotcha. So you can make, don't make the mistake between employee and independent slash subcontractor, those two things. I mean, and I think that the world is changing too, right? With technology and with Uber and there's kind of this whole new class of worker that is more readily available to the world because of so many different tech platforms that make them available to the world that this could be sort of a, a newer thing. No, absolutely. I think Uber was really the first one to kick it off. They have a force of drivers that are not mm-hmm. employees, right? They are right. independent contractors, which were most taxi places for years where they were employees, right? And then mm-hmm. they had to pay overtime and they had to pay all these things. And that's really what I think what Uber tried to do is to get away from having employees, having to pay overtime, health insurance and all that. They're independent contractors. They have their own car and that kind of thing. So what are you seeing Where are you seeing the trend going in the painting industry? I mean, the labor situation is very serious. Are you seeing that more people are using outside contractors to help with work? Or are you seeing less of that? Well, I think now I'm seeing more of it just because of the labor shortages, right? And so instead of trying to go find painters, train them and hire them, you could hire a subcontractor that already has that on staff. So I think in some situations, it depends on the project and how much money you have in it, where a subcontractor is a better fit. Most of your residential guys and all of that, unless they're big projects, would try to have in-house guys because I think it's more efficient. But you could also, if, you, if you're a bigger company and you're running lots of projects and you need help, then subcontractors is a way to go. And especially trying to fill that gap between you have so much work, you don't have enough employees to fill, fill that gap. Hire subs until you can get those employees in there and get them trained. So it's kind of, it's always fluctuating as to what's happening out there. I would love to ask a squishy question. And by squishy, I mean basically impossible to answer. And that's why I ask such questions. Uh, Meaning there is no clear-cut binary answer. But basically, you know, what is driving the trend as far as the increase or decreased use of subs? And I guess more specifically, again, generally speaking, is the use of subs viewed in your mind as generally benefiting the employer or benefiting the employee? And of course it depends and it, the answer is yes on both sides, but generally speaking, which one is it benefiting more? Um, so if it's okay, so because <laughs> <laughs> it can benefit both, right? If it's done right, if you have an employee that you're trying to pay like a subcontractor, that's when it's not very good for the, the employee that should be treated like an employee, right? Some companies that I don't think they know any better or are trying to do things cheap would hire somebody that is like an independent person that should technically be an employee, but hire them as a 1099. That's when it's really bad for the employee because then you don't get paid overtime and all of the stuff that you're entitled to. Now, if you're hiring a subcontractor that's truly its own company and coming in and they get paid a fair wage, I think that's a great idea. The one thing that you have to worry about when you're hiring subcontractors is that even if you hire that sub, you're still on the hook to do the work that you promised to do to the owner. And so it's kind of a risky situation there. Because don't be wrong, all day long, the sub could have insurance and the sub could have all this stuff, but you spend hours and lots of money chasing that. So that's the kind of risk of having subs. But the benefit is if you get a good sub and you just get into a rhythm, it can go really smoothly and you don't have to worry about withholding taxes, paying health insurance, paying overtime, all of that stuff. 
everybody, I mean, and in this situation, you're dealing with the flexibility of your sub, meaning you're giving that sub flexibility. You can't say, listen, you're here from 5 a.m. until 10 a.m. every day. Here's our shirts. Here's our branding. You really sort of have to let them operate within their schedule. You have to fit into their schedule. They're not fitting into yours. Am I right? Yeah, and that's truly what an independent contractor would be. Don't get me wrong. I think you could have in your contract that they have to wear your shirt. I don't think that would change it from employee to subcontractor. I think you'd be fine to do that. But they're fitting you into their schedule as opposed to opposite. I, I agree. Then it's truly a subcontractor. Today's podcast is sponsored by A. David Creation. Are you looking for fresh marketing perspectives for your painting business? How about effective planning and follow-through? The A. David Creation team specializes in marketing for painters, helping business owners grow their business, improve sales, and reclaim their time. Schedule your free 45-minute consultation at adavidcreation.com. That's one word, adavidcreation.com. Today's podcast is brought to you by Hide Tools. You know the name. When you think of Hide Tools, you probably think surface prep, joint knives, taping knives, multi-tools, drywall, sanding. They've been making these tools since most of us were even born, but not longer than Emily's been around. Emily, when you think of Hide Tools, what do you think of? You know, I think I really think about all the things you just said. But, you know, there's one thing I've always wondered, which is, <gasps> Why doesn't Hyde make applicators? They do. That's the <gasps> big surprise announcement today. Yes, I know, right? Sincere shock is what you're hearing in my voice. Hyde has introduced the Evolution lineup of brushes and rollers. And of course, we know that Hyde works a ton with painting contractors. They work with their own pro club. They love feedback from contractors. Emily, what do you think? I keep asking you, Emily, because you represent the common man. No one is more common <laughs> than Emily Howard. When Hyde asked contractors, what do they want in rollers? What do you think they said? You know, if I were going to make a guess based on things that I've, I've talked to contractors about, I think that they'd probably say that they want them to be lint free. Two for two. Emily nailed it. The Evolution microfiber roller covers are guaranteed. 100% lint free, unlike the sweaters that Emily wears all the time. Emily, third question for you. What do you think contractors said when Hyde asked them, what do they want in a paintbrush? You know, we have been talking in the magazine a lot about comfort, something that fits comfortably in your hands so that you're getting a little bit less fatigued throughout the day. Nailed it. Comfort, just like this radio read. That's what we've got. Comfort the paintbrush handle that actually fits your hand comfortably. They designed a unique oval-shaped handle that nestles perfectly into your hand. So the brushes, they come in all sorts of sizes. The microfiber roller covers, they come in the regular 9-inch, mini, jumbo mini, all the different nap heights. These products are hot off the presses and are not yet available online. So keep an eye out at your favorite hardware or paint store just look for the evolution on the package with the trusty Hyde logo next to it. Well, so I'm curious because there is, I mean, we've seen so many changes in the world the last five years with Uber, with tech companies who have come 
forth. And, and ideally, right, that the marketing pitch behind these and the marketing pitch sounds quite good, right, is, is to start connecting people, whether it's a it's a small painting contractor who can be connected with homeowners who need work and all of the back end marketing, sales, payment, all that stuff is taken care of by the platform. You come out, you do the work when you can, when you need to. What are some things, if, if that sounds interesting to you, if you think, gosh, I really don't want to have to deal with the marketing. I don't want to have to do with the sales. I don't want to deal with the payment. I would like for someone else, whether it's a tech company or a painting company to handle that for me. What types of things do you need to be looking at in a subcontract? So A, you need to have a subcontract, but what are, what are some of the clauses that you think could be stumbling blocks maybe down the road? I would look for non-competes in these things to make sure that you can still do other work. I would look for some of their other technical requirements, like are they requiring you to be on call at certain times? You know, how will it affect your other jobs? What standards are you going to be held to? When you do the painting work and, you know, and on the, on the Uber side too, it's, it's really, really hard to make a living being an Uber driver because they take so much, right? And so even not even from what's in the contract, but are you going to make money at what they're going to be paying you? And I think there's huge oversight when we look at what the actually, the numbers get crunched down to, like it's going to cost you, but they're only paying you. And if you're really going to think about doing this, and maybe do it for a trial period and really keep track of everything so you can see if you're really making money or not. Because what I have a feeling is that they're not. Mm. So you may be able to get out of some of the sales and marketing and maybe the collection of payment side, but man, you do not get out of knowing your numbers is what Absolutely. it sounds like. Especially <laughs> in the side, right? Like yeah. I, would, I would make sure you could do it like a trial and it's not forever and really pay attention because I mean, and, and what could happen is that very easily they could eat through these guys like and they just keep signing up, but they keep going out of business because they're not making enough money. And don't be wrong, that happens even without this kind of service. If you take the wrong kind of jobs, it all comes down to knowing your numbers at the end of the day. Right. Well, and just understanding, you know, because you're right, if you're a sub, right, you are paying your own employment taxes. So you need to consider that as basically you now have your own overhead expenses that you have to keep an eye on and you have to consider when this work is being bid and you find out how much you're getting paid. And they're going to give you a 1099 and you're going to have to pay taxes on what they paid you because they didn't take them out. Right. So that's another thing that you need to have long term planning for. That you don't, yes, you're getting this check now, but how much of that do you owe to the IRS? Right. So making sure that you've got a a list of what your overhead expenses are and you understand what your financial picture needs to look like at the end of the year. And still, to some extent, you're still going to have to be running a business somehow to keep track of all of your expenses and all of that. So that could be deducted off your income, right? I think that makes sense. Know your numbers. I think that's the number one Number one thing that we have to remind everyone of all the time. What about some other things? I think we talked about non-competes. What about like cancellation clauses? What are some things that you're seeing in any kind of kind of subcontracts out there that you think we should be keeping an eye out for? Really, cancellation clauses make sure that you have a right to cancel because some, most of these contracts don't give you that right. So that means you're on the hook for the term of the contract. And if you cancel early, there's probably a penalty or some kind of payout or something like that that's going to be involved. And so I would make sure that we leave ourselves the right, like if, give yourself a trial period or some way that you can, with like 30 days notice, you can cancel the contract because you don't want to be tied in for a certain amount of time, especially on a negotiated rate. 
Well, and what about payment terms, right? Like we see this with GCs and, and subcontractors all the time, right? Pay when, pay when we get paid. And I would say that with anything, you always want to be looking at the payment terms because, you know, whether you're a company that has employees and you're all going out to work or you're doing it on your own, you don't want to be two or three months without any income. So what kind of payment terms should people be looking for? I wouldn't imagine that they would have a pay when pay clause. It's probably part of the benefit to signing up to, um, you know, something that has a repeated work where they handle the front end. But what paperwork do you have to submit to get paid? How frequently? You know, like what evidence do you have to prove? Do you have to have time sheets? What are, what are you submitting to get paid? And then how long are they saying is a turnaround? Is it 30 days from when you submit that, that they guarantee payment? And how, you know, how long can you float that money until you actually get paid? So, and, and I guess, you know, ultimately what I'm trying to needle in on is, is, is that we have a lot of contractors who currently have a tremendous backlog. That said, there are still some contractors out there that reach out to us and they say, my sales are terrible. Mm-hmm. I have no backlog. We're just trying to get work. And I wonder for those companies if there might be some different opportunities out there that they might want to explore at this point because work, you know, generally speaking is pretty good at the moment, but there's some other opportunities that they need to explore out there without being exploited. And I think it goes down again to knowing your numbers, reading it, make sure there's no, no compete in there. How much are they going to pay you? When are they going to pay you? What do you have to submit to get paid going to work? And at the end of the day, you end up paying them to go work. It's not worth it. Right. And so, Really, that's the most important part is that there's an offer out there. You got to decide if it's a good one or a bad one. And that's all depending on your overhead. And, you know, I think it's a great thing for somebody who wants to fly by night guy who's just himself, has a van and just wants to work sometime. And he can turn on his, I'm a painter ready to work. And he works for a day or two and then he turns it off. I mean, I think. For that kind of thing, that kind of situation, that guy that doesn't have any overhead or anything like that, it's probably a good idea. But for somebody who's more established, and it's probably not a good idea, just because the dollar amount that they would be getting paid, the negotiated rate is going to be substantially less. And it'd be really hard to make money if you had any kind of overhead. I will ask the lawyer this question, but (laughs) do you need a lawyer to maybe look at some of these and walk you through what's what some of these clauses mean. I think we've all been stuck in contract review and thought, what does that say? I'm just not quite sure. Absolutely. And so like I offer it on a flat fee because that's how important it is. So like zero to 15 pages is 550 bucks and 15 to 30 pages is 1,050. But I'm going to go through there and I'm going to say, hey, this is a risk. Hey, this is a risk. Hey, this Mm -hmm. is a risk. And then you can decide if it's worth taking. But at least somebody told you what you're walking into. Right. Yeah. That's the other, you know, is there no compete? Is it going to be enforceable? And what the tendency is, and I think no competes are probably on their way out just because the current president has started a board to go look at these things to see if they should still even exist. So right now the status of no competes, they've always been very tenuous, but they're hardly ever enforced against a mid-level worker, like somebody who actually does the work. They'd be more enforceable against executives. So, you know, if they have an, a no compete and you're just an apprentice painter, it'd be very hard for that to be enforced against you. What are some of the clauses, the non-compete clauses that you see? Like, what do those look like? I'm curious because 
in an employer-employee relationship, right, a non-compete would often look like don't go work for Joe's Painting, who's down the street and, and our main competitor. But if you're working for a company like, um, you know, there are tech companies out there, Paintsin, PPG Services, Handy, all of these different tech companies – do you have a sense, does that mean that you can't work for the homeowner for two years that, that you found on their platform? Is that kind of the form that these non-competes are taking on a, on a subcontractor or independent contractor contract? Yeah, the ones you're seeing in those contractors, you can't work directly for the homeowner, uh, you know, for a period of time or whoever, you know, whoever hired whoever you're subbing for, for some time after the project. And the subcontractor, independent contractor relationship, they're highly enforced. In the employee relationship, they're not so highly enforced. Just so is Biden looking at the non-competes at the subcontractor relationship or the employee? At the employee. Okay, interesting. Would you recommend if there is a non-compete clause in any of the, you know, whether it be a tech platform, a painting company, a GC, would you recommend that that's something, is that a walk away thing or is that a try to negotiate a thing? What would your advice if you saw that in a contract be? It's definitely try to negotiate. As far as like, I don't see there being an issue with having a no compete or like won't hire on a project that you're on. But if you try to extend it out past, like, you'll never work for any of my customers ever, that I would have a problem with, right? If I'm hired on a sub on a project, I completely understand that you don't want me going around you and having whoever hired you hired me directly. But it's once it goes past that, that I would try to negotiate and or have it removed. Do you have any advice on scope of work? So you've got one entity who is pricing the work to either the homeowner or a commercial entity. And then you've got another group who is doing the work. Now, I think we all know that there are scenarios in which something may have been overlooked, the estimating time. What should those clauses look like if you get on the site and it's not quite what you expected? Well, so in the situation, like if you're a sub to a sub, you're just hired to do the work. You're not really overly concerned with the terms of the actual sub. So like if one of the services signed a subcontract and then subbed out the work, they're on the hook if they miss something. And really that doesn't really flow downhill. And so from that perspective, a subcontractor who's actually doing the work is kind of protected, right? Because the sub that's, you know, the sign the contract is taking all the risk. But if you're signing a contract and you miss something like that, or you miss something in estimating, that's a huge, huge liability. Because once you sign that contract for that price, that's what you've agreed to do. And like I said, what I say all the time is that the bid and the scope are two different things. Usually generally not hired to do your bid. You're hired to do the scope of the contract, the scope that's attached to the contract that you signed. And unless it's the bid that's attached to the contract, that's not what you're hired to do. And so when you get into the difference between those two, what I always tell my clients is when you get a subcontract back, scope attached, review it as if you were bidding a new project to make sure it matches what you initially bid. Carolyn, is there anything else that could be hiding in those contracts, even if it is with a tech company that is bringing homeowners and contractors together? I mean, obviously you can't answer this. No, I'm trying, I'm trying to think. <laughs> <laughs> but is there anything else hiding in there that we should be looking for? No, I mean, they're probably going to require you have insurance of some sort, I'm going to imagine. They're going to probably require you to hand, and, and okay, so that who's going to pay for the material? Uh, I would also read the contract and that. Are you going to be required to have 
workers' comp insurance if you have employees? You know, what are the requirements on the insurance requirements that you're going to have to have uh, would be another thing that I think would be very important to look at. And what happens, like, what happens if there's a change order or the homeowner wants or whoever you're working for wants extra work? What's the process of doing that? How do you get that submitted? How do you get that approved? Um, and obviously don't do the extra work without getting something in writing because you definitely won't get paid. Uh, and I'm sure the contract would say that if you did extra work without getting anything signed off on that, you're not going to get paid for that. So I'm sure that's in there. I think those would be the big things. Like I said, I would have it reviewed and gone over and at least know the risk, like know the risk of the contract and then make sure you can make money at the number that they're offering you. Yeah, because the beauty, I mean, I think the beauty of doing any kind of, of sub work is, is that in an ideal world, you're choosing the jobs that you take. Yep. And it is your choice. So choose well. Yeah. And make sure that's in the contract that you have the option to decline work. Right. You don't just have to do everything they send to you. I think that's a great point. Well, because then I don't know how I'm not quite sure exactly how this works. You know, when we're talking about tech companies that are bringing service providers and homeowners together. But yeah, like when you look at Uber, I think there are some rules in there that says, you know, if you decline a ride five or 10 minutes after someone's requested it or within like a certain period, if you accept it and then decline it, you're docked a couple of bucks. And the same goes for the writer, but you want to be aware, I think, of all the little rules and stipulations Absolutely. that might think, be. Yeah, definitely. And I think another thing that would be different as on the Uber route. So like if there's an incident that happens, if you're taking an Uber ride, you get to sue Uber. And the same thing is here, right? If you're working with one of these type of companies, something happens that you don't do the work as you're supposed to the owner or whoever is going to sue the tech company. But I'm sure they're going to counter sue you. They're not going to indemnify you from any suit from the homeowner. So that's part of the beauty of Uber, right? Uber, you can't get sued if you work for Uber. You could try, but Uber's going to defend you. I think in this situation, if you did a bad job, that they would add you to the suit and you'd have to defend yourself would be another thing that I would be. So part of what would be the benefit to doing this is that you're insulated from liability for bad work or, you know, claims of bad work, not that they're valid. Right. I don't think that you would have that same protection. I think you would be added to any suit and have to defend yourself. Well, I think I read that if we read every single terms of agreement that we agree to as human beings these days, mm-hmm. we'd be reading for like 12 years or something <laughs> unbelievably ridiculous. But I think this is a great example of something where you really, regardless of whether or not you're working for a painting contractor or a GC, or if you're starting to take advantage of some of these tech companies out there that are booking work and subbing them out to either subcontractors or independent contractors or whatever, the terms of the agreement are really, really important. And not only do you want to read them, you might also want to get them reviewed so that you have a full understanding of what you're actually signing up for. Absolutely. And at least you know what you're going in with your eyes wide open. That, yeah. That's the best way to handle any situations. So if you just sign it, then we don't know the ramifications that can happen. And the other thing is that you don't know all the things you're required to do. So you could automatically be in breach of the contract just because you don't understand what you're supposed to do. think it's good advice. This is why you need to know an attorney, because when things get squishy, attorneys aren't afraid of squishy. And so you seek them out and they will de-squishify the situation. Carolyn, you're like a Jedi. You handle those things expertly. Thank you so much for being on our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad I could help.
And again, she's Carolyn Crow Means. That's C-R-O-M-E-E-N-S, owner and managing partner of the Crow Means Law Firm in Houston. She has a book called Quit Getting Screwed, Understanding and Negotiating the Subcontract. You can find out about that at her website, thecrowmeanslawfirm.com. Again, C-R-O-M-E-E-N-S. She also created the Subcontractor Institute. That website is subcontractorinstitute.com. Great resources there. Great resources, including tons of Jedi mind tricks at paintmag.com. Check it out today. You'll be glad you did. Have a great day, everybody. Everybody.